Hey Matt, how's it going? Alex, how you doing? Good. Welcome to the first episode of Emergence. The first ever. You feeling good? I am. It's it's good because uh, up until two weeks ago, I didn't know what podcasts were. And then simultaneously, you and, and my girlfriend got me turned on to them, and now we're making our own. That's really funny. What podcast is your girlfriend having you listen to? Oh, she's listening to the weirdest ones about um, serial killers and, and people with um, with weird fetishes. And now I've made my girlfriend sound very strange in the first minutes of our podcast. It's a serial killer podcast, not to be confused with Serial, the podcast that's sweeping the nation. It's true. As of a few months ago. Actually, it might be Serial. Oh, okay. And, okay. and a separate <laughs> one about serial killers. I don't okay. know. Nice. Um... Yeah, no, so I had been listening to a bunch of great tech podcasts, such as the Andreessen Horowitz podcast and Exponent with uh, Ben Thompson and James Allworth. And when Matt was back in town and he mentioned, like, hey, what should I be listening to? I was like, well, you should be listening to these things. And Matt comes back to me a couple days later. He's like, these are so great. I've listened to, like, 20 straight hours. I did. <laughs> so, I, uh, I was listening to them while doing the dishes, while walking to work. That's what I do, too. Everything. Yeah. I, I listen a lot when I'm running, so which is probably not great for my fitness, but that's all right. So I guess before we go any further, we should probably introduce ourselves. Good idea. After you, sir. All right. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm Alex here, by the way, so you can distinguish our voices. And I'm Matt. My background is a little bit atypical for people in the tech world. Um, I come from a life science background. I did my master's degree in neuroscience uh, in Montreal at uh, lovely University of McGill, where I did research on chronic pain. And following my master's degree, uh, I ended up meeting Matt through this wonderful, strange, and interesting tech incubator accelerator uh, contraption called Tandem Launch, where I ended up, we were both entrepreneurs and residents together, and I ended up starting a venture called Backtrack, which was my first foray into the entrepreneurship world, trying to build tools to help people in physiotherapy keep track of their movement during recovery more effectively, and to help uh, metrics surrounding recovery and physical therapy all the way up and down the healthcare stack. I left that in November to take a couple months off and relax, and now I am currently head of operations at another new startup in Montreal called Share the Bus, which is an online marketplace for charter bus travel that focuses on bringing people to and from large events where we all gather and nobody wants to drive. Matt, how about you? I have a, uh, well, we were obviously at Tandem Lunch at the same time. Uh, before that, I kind of found entrepreneurship by accident. When I was in, I went to a very uh, uppity uh, New England prep school. I actually went to a rival one of your uppity New we England prep schools, Alex so there tri- we go. Trivia for our, our listeners, if there are any at this point. Uh, Alex and I ran against each other in, in high school cross country and didn't know it. Until That's a good point. Just I now. forgot about that. Um, good call. But so I, I went to this, this uh, I say uppity, I probably shouldn't say that publicly. <laughs> uh, I went to this, this very respectable New England prep school <laughs> where I think everybody knew exactly... Um, what they wanted to specialize in, in, in medicine and law, and, and which firm they wanted to work at, and, and all that by the age of 14. And I didn't know any of that, uh, and I felt very lost. And I kind of found this great group of kids in my first year at, at McGill, and in, uh, right after the earthquake happened in, in Haiti in 2011, we all decided to just go down there uh, without a real plan. And, and, and this group of guys were, were very much into filming uh, ski videos. And they took that skill, and, and we ended up applying it to uh, making nonprofit videos for folks down in Haiti. We, we filmed for the United Nations. Uh, we filmed for the International Medical Corps. We got some things on Haitian TV, which was pretty cool. Producing something in Creole when you don't speak it wow. is, is interesting. <laughs> and that, that got the ball rolling for me. And, and so after that, I started my first for-profit company called Moral Fibers. Uh, we worked with artists in Haiti. We took their art. We turned it into a, a clothing brand. And, and the, the goal there was to try and incorporate 
social good into our bottom line. Uh, the more social good we did, hopefully if the model worked out, the more profit we would make. Uh, we ended up breaking even and, and dissolving a few years later, and uh, I went to Tail Launch because Helge was an advisor for that company. Mm. I was at Tail Launch for a summer and ended up folding over into uh, one of their portfolio companies called Mirror Metrics. Um, We're currently in the beautiful Mirror Metrics office right here in Montreal. We are. We, we are in a, on the 20th floor of, of the Mirror Metrics offices on McGill College Avenue in Montreal. And uh, Mirror Metrics does not have 20 floors, just to be clear, <laughs> just one. It's not our building just yet. <laughs> uh, but what we do is uh, we do eye tracking. And uh, I can't say publicly what we're doing uh, just it's yet, but very it's, secretive. it's very secret. We're doing the submarine model, and it's just very different than what you see on our website today, and that's all I can say. Mm -hmm. So Matt works in the most secretive and interesting and technological business ever, and I work in the least secretive and most public-facing <laughs> business ever of helping people go party at big festivals. So together we figured it'd make a good podcast. Yeah, more or less the same thing. <laughs> yep. So we, we came, well, I guess we should now talk about what we're going to talk about. Yeah, uh, we have a, we would like to talk about, so we, don't want to, we don't want to just copy Exponent, one of our favorite podcasts, Although we might, uh, but we, we might, might come pretty we close. Come close. Um, we'll be talking a lot about tech and society and the future and how technology is changing things, um, some of our bets on what the future is going to look like as a result of those changes. And overall, try to get some fresh perspectives on where we think the world is headed and what the world already is in ways that we may not yet have described very well collectively as humans. I think that's a great description. So we, we kind of struggled with the, the first topic and we, we threw a lot of things back and forth and, and where we ended up with uh, was zero rating. Zero rating. And I think it was, it was probably the, the bit of the hullabaloo around... Uh, Mark Zuckerberg's blog post a few weeks ago uh, about internet.org. If any of you um, do not know what zero rating is, zero rating is a very interesting topic um, that has massive implications for the future of how people around the world access the internet and everything that's on it. Um, most, my first uh, exposure to zero rating, uh, probably like many of yours, was when T-Mobile announced that you are now be able to... Um, use streaming music services like Spotify without having a count against your data plan. And at first, a lot of people said, whoa, that's great. I can stream all my music. And then immediately, everybody says, oh, that's so anti-net neutrality. This is terrible. This is going to be awful for innovation and for new startups trying to break in since the internet won't be a level playing field. And I think it, it's clear, and, and we don't want to rehash a, a played-out argument about whether or not zero-rating uh, supports or is against net neutrality, because I think we're both on the same page that it it kind of isn't, right? And it's very clear cut that it isn't. Mm -hmm. that it isn't. Uh, I think where the far more interesting conversation surrounding zero rating is not so much in the developed world, where we're fretting about you know innovation and new services and whether the new Snapchat will be able to break out. But really, we're more interested in talking about the developing world, where Millions and millions of people are coming online for the first time, and the very way that they get online is brought to you by advertisers like Google and Facebook. Um, since bandwidth is very expensive still in many parts of the world, a lot of people are getting the internet brought to them exclusively through companies like Facebook, who essentially say, you can use Facebook as the internet and it will not cost you anything in terms of data, and we're going to be essentially the new AOL for many parts of the world. Well, what's interesting about that, I think, is is 
to, mm-hmm. to folks in, in the developed world that, that may not make much sense. In the same way you look at something like WhatsApp and, and you say, well, I don't get why WhatsApp is popular because I can just text. I mean, sure, there, there are still folks in, in North America who have international texting features, which are quite a bit, but what we don't realize is uh, in other markets, especially in the developing world, texting is, is extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. And if your marginal cost per, per I don't know, marginal cost per text is, is high because uh, your income is low, uh, WhatsApp is a huge value proposition. Absolutely. And, and so the, the marginal cost per gigabyte, I guess, if mm-hmm. you will, uh, for people it's much who, higher. Yeah, exactly. Many people are not even in the gigabyte range, right? That's yeah, that's, that's still a long ways, ways away. Um, I think, broadly speaking, a lot of the debate surrounding zero rating uh, in these developing countries has come down into these two camps, where the people who are anti-zero rating are saying, it is really not good for a significant portion of the globe to be getting all of their internet access and all of the news that comes with it at the hands of advertisers who completely control the news feed and the pipe and the type of information that people see. But the, the counter argument there is, is pretty clear too, which is that more free access to information is, is net good for society exactly. on the whole. And I think when, when Alex and I were, were planning this episode, he, he brought up a good point, which is um, there's always been a, a lens or a filter through which we've received news. But even before the net, it was, it was newspapers, which were, for all intents and purposes, local monopolies back in, in the early 20th century. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at, um, if you go back in history, you go back to the Spanish-American War and remember the Maine, which uh, I guess we learned about in high school because we're both American. Uh, sorry, Canadians who may be listening to this. Remember the Maine was basically um, a war that got started allegedly because uh, a bunch of people at newspapers decided that a war would be very profitable for them. Um, so they stoked a lot of fires and essentially started a small conflict. And the point of all this that we're we're trying to get to is that news has always been brought to people by advertisers because most people cannot afford to pay for what the news actually costs. And similarly, most people could not afford to pay what the internet actually costs to make and to be delivered to you were it not subsidized by advertisers who get a small piece of your eyeballs and can make this all paid for. And what's interesting there, I mean, I think... Again, on the whole, net increase in information is a good thing. Um, but if you look back at you know what the, the New York Times slogan used to be, all all the news that's fit that's fit to print, you know they kind of imply that they're the arbiter of what you should and shouldn't see. Sure. So it's it's that that filter that's key. So I think you know what's different now is scale. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot more information that the world is producing, and so the need now for a filter is, is much greater than it was in the past and will only continue to grow. And information now does, doesn't just represent um, being knowledgeable about what's happening, it also means opportunity, right? Uh, Benedict Evans has an excellent point where he says, a smartphone is actually the opposite of a luxury good because the less you have, the more it matters to you. You know, a laborer in a developing country can literally double their income by having a smartphone and thereby gaining access to where the work is. Right. And Mark Zuckerberg actually, you know, writes this fairly eloquently and quoting from a blog post that he put up uh, a couple weeks ago. You can read here. Arguments about net neutrality shouldn't be used to prevent the most disadvantaged people in society from gaining access or to deprive people of opportunity. Eliminating programs that bring more people online won't increase social inclusion or close the digital divide. It will only deprive all of us of the ideas and contributions of the two thirds of the world who are not yet connected. And so here's the thing about about that blog post is that. And I never thought I would say this out loud, let alone publicly, but, but I believe in, in Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, his mission has always been to connect people. And I think, I think that's genuine. 
I believe in Mark Zuckerberg too. I just don't know what happens when Mark Zuckerberg's conviction runs into Facebook stock price. Well, and the other thing is, is you you can never kind of trust an actor like Facebook, which let's remember is a publicly traded company, to have altruistic means. Mm -hmm. And and I think if you look in the past, you know, these actors have never consistently acted in one way or another. Sure. Are, well, aside from in their own personal game. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I think. Ultimately, we don't want to have yet another is zero rating good or bad debate, but I think where we would like to bring something new to the table is to say, well, if zero rating is in fact going to be the way that the next billion people come online, first of all, who pays for it and why, and who wins and why? Um, I think right now there have been two companies that have very prominently been featured uh, in this conversation, and that's Google and Facebook with all the talk of putting up balloons over sub-Saharan Africa. Drones. And drones, exactly. Which I think make for great news stories, except for what ultimately matters is not how the internet is there, it's what happens when it's there. Well, and I think what, what's also interesting is, is what the internet looks like when it's there. Uh, I think we're in this, this interesting inflection point in, in the internet where, you know, look, look back at the creation of the PC market, and, and what you saw was, was the browser was the way to get access to the internet there. And obviously there were some, some battles that were fought there. When, when Microsoft decided to bundle Internet Explorer with Windows, you know, look what that did to Netscape overnight. Mm -hmm. That decision, I think, if, if, you, if you look into it, is, is what drove Google to open source Android. Right. They realized control of, of the OS meant uh, control of the browser, which meant access to Google services right. where they make money. And fast flash forward to 2015, where Google Android is now going to be the way that you know 80, 85% of the world comes online. Google is now in that interesting position where they stand to benefit with more people coming online and using their Android platform. Um, the question is, what will people be doing with that platform, right? Because well, there, there are two ways of getting to the internet. You mm -hmm. can go through the browser, whether it's Chrome or, or Opera, or I don't even know if they have Safari. Opera, on. wow. I know. <laughs> whether it's, let's, let's, let's be honest, whether it's Chrome or whether it's via someone's platform. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what Facebook is, is uh, on the verge of, of doing these days, which is not just being a social network for the world, but being the, the front door to the world's internet. And, and there mm -hmm. I think I'm, I'm paraphrasing uh, Ben Thompson, so I apologize. You might. Um, but well, it's again, true, it, that's where they're going. Right, I mean, it, it really does beg the question, for people in the developing world, does the internet look like Internet Explorer, like it did for us, or does it look like AOL, right? If Facebook gets their way, does the internet look like one giant portal where you know Facebook pages and posts and news items are the new AOL keywords? And it's interesting because we've, we've seen that recently where, where now you're seeing sites like I think it was the New York Times and, and Huffington Post maybe who are going okay. to be posting content directly oh, on yeah. Facebook. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so there is no need to, to drive traffic elsewhere. Right. And so exactly. what's interesting is, is the strategies for these two con uh, companies are, are diametrically opposed mm -hmm. because all the, the traffic that goes to the Facebook platform is, is traffic that Google can't touch. Exactly. And vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so Google's strategy with Android has always been to drive traffic to Google services. Uh, everything, I guess, within the Google ecosystem directs back to search, mm -hmm. but that's supported by, by Gmail, by YouTube, by Maps. Exactly. And if that's all done on Facebook, from the Facebook app, mm -hmm. that's hidden from them. Exactly. No, Google may well be in serious trouble in the sense that if everybody is on Android phones, but they're using those Android phones exclusively to use Facebook and everything that's on it, then Facebook is capturing all the value. And Android, in a sense, becomes like what the desktop PC manufacturers were to Microsoft. 
right? They were doing all the hard work, work building the machines, but Microsoft was eating all the margin. We may see a similar situation where Facebook is actually capturing all the value on top of these Android phones that everybody now has. Well, it, and, and I love that analogy. I think it just works on, on so many levels. What I think is very neat about what Facebook's doing is that it, they, they know that the battle for zero rating and the battle for who is going to be the main way that the developing world gets to the internet is going to come down to who is going to win the war where they partner with the ISPs in the developing world. Um, the thing with net neutrality, or net neutrality, excuse me, with zero rating is that Facebook and Google can pay money for people's access all they want, but that doesn't work unless there are actually cell towers on the ground, right? Or actually some way to transmit an internet signal to people. And for all of the talk of them bringing in balloons and stuff like that, for at least the foreseeable future, the developing world getting access to the internet is going to depend on partnerships between the people who are actually laying cable and putting up towers. And that begs the question, are these ISPs and mobile telcos in the developing world more comfortable cozying up to Google or to Facebook? Who makes a better dance partner for them? And I would argue that it's probably Facebook. And why? Well, um, again, I would go back to sort of the notion of who who are your who are your biggest uh, enemies as a company. If you're a small company, you know what you're most worried about is that nobody cares about you. And if you're a medium-sized company, what you most care about are people who are at the same level of the tech stack as you, because they're your competitors. But if you're a really big company, who you're most afraid of are the people who are at adjacent levels of the tech stack to you. You're worried that somebody at an adjacent level is going to do something so game-changing that you become eclipsed or irrelevant. So in the case of the telcos, they're probably much more uneasy with Google, who has been laying out these initiatives to for things like Google Fiber, you know, in cities across the U.S. to directly prod uh, the cable companies into improving their service, or with Google becoming an MVNO, uh, Mobile Virtual Network Operator, in order to resell broadband spectrum. Uh, the telcos realize that Google is very close to potentially being able to turn them into a big, dumb pipe. Um, and realizes that Google's ambitions may necessarily run very counter to their own. Facebook, on the other hand, is a whole layer of the tech stack above Google and may make a much better partner for the cable companies. You know, Facebook doesn't really care what the telco's pipe look like. They just want it to be there, right, so that they can do their thing. Well, it's interesting, and I think that argument applies from the MNO perspective. Mm-hmm. Where I agree with you, I think I think Facebook is a better dance partner partner in that perspective. But if you look at it from from the the eyes of the consumer, I would disagree. I mean, so you're you're looking right now at, at maybe the the platformification of the web, sure. if you will, where I will now be accessing uh, the web from a private platform, i.e. the Facebook app, as opposed to a, a neutral platform, i.e. The, the browser. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those are the, the two different worlds we're facing. And, and the problem, I think, at, at the most fundamental level with zero rating is it's okay to have filtered news and, and filtered access to information because it's necessary. But it just can't be a monopolistic source. And, and the problem of everybody accessing the Internet through Facebook is, is Facebook is the sole filter. In, in the Google world where you're accessing it through the browser, I can still access different websites and, and traffic on different people's uh, sites. Mm-hmm. It's just that, that everything happens to flow back to Google and, and search. 
So I think that that's a more open world in the future. It, it's a world with more supply of information, if you will. But I, I don't I don't think it's the world that will win is the problem. So so what you're what you're saying, if I can summarize this correctly, is that although a Google run free internet would be better for the consumer because it's more open, because of that very fact they're less likely to win. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> if you look at Google's strategy with, with Chromebook and, and Chrome OS you know, that, that's an alternative view of the future. Instead of a mobile operating system with apps, everything is just the web. And I think that having a neutral platform to access information becomes key down the line. So many of these discussions that I have about the web versus apps and how we get information, I always find myself coming back to that XKCD comic. You know what I'm talking about? Where he says, like, hey, I had a great idea, you know? Apps have become so fast to install and so easy to um, download from the web why not sell a phone that has every app installed and just downloads them and runs them on the fly? And he says, I was feeling really clever until I realized that I invented web pages. Well, it's um, interesting. Yeah. If, you, if you listen to Exponent, one of the things they, they say a lot is, is, you know, there's only two ways to make money on the, on the web. It's, it's bundling and unbundling. Oh, that's you Jim go, Barksdale. That's true. Classic Jim Barksdale quote. <laughs> so you, you go back and forth from, from these two. So I wonder if we'll see that between apps and... and the web. Sure. Well, if you think about it again, if you think about the tech stack as being at the very bottom, you know, you have the the telcos and the mobile network operators who provide spectrum and access. And then in the middle, you have the hardware layer as well as the OS, which are increasingly becoming more and more smushed together. And then at the top, you have the stuff that people actually want to use, right? The, the reasons why you use your phone in the first place which at this point are pretty much coming down to you use your phone because you're a device because you have the web, you use it because you have apps, and you use it because there are notifications slash messages. And Facebook is pretty rapidly demonstrating that it is running the show on all three, right? They control a huge proportion of the number of click-through links to content on the web. Um, they have something like four out of the top what? Four out of the top ten downloaded apps in the world. It's actually amazing right. how they've how they've managed to pull off this transition. I know it's it was only a few years ago when when people were were saying that mobile was going to be the end of Facebook. I know, because right? They, it's they didn't, remarkable. They hadn't figured out a model to 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 monetize mobile. Level. Yeah, no. Early Facebook on phones was terrible, and not only was it terrible, yeah, exactly. It was like it's a small screen. Nobody knows how you can capture attention. Turns out actually that the small screen was great because you can just it actually the real run, estate issue. It solves the real estate issue and native ads actually just become a part of the phone experience, right? So, um, you know what's really funny is I was talking to you the other day is that one of the best things to have happened to Facebook may have been Facebook Home failing because with like Facebook Home, do you remember when they, what they tried to do was essentially to be almost like a skin on top of the operating system on the phone to replace sort of the home screen and the apps there and to try to become a skin on top of Android. And it turns out that I think, first of all, that's not a very good place to advertise from. Um, it's second of all, it forced Facebook to focus on what they're being really good at, which is being the way that you access the web and being the network of people that you use the web for. And in doing so, A, it turns out that that monetized really well, but B, made them a much better dance partner for the telcos, right? Both of whom now feel totally comfortable with squeezing Google into a commodity OS layer but, that makes no but money. But aside, and I agree with that, that that's mm -hmm. where it's going, but aside from internet.org, which, which let's remember is a separate organization from Facebook. Oh, yes, the yes, same of course. Founder, do you really think that, that Facebook is going to be driving infrastructure investment from, from 
mobile network operators? Well, that's a really good question. Is it because, enough? Yeah, because if you think about it, if people in the developing world are going to be paying for this infrastructure investment through advertising, right, which is which is the the which is what all of this hinges on. You, first of all, you have to have very deep pockets to finance this kind of stuff, and it's really you're pretty much looking at Google and Facebook as the only two players who could pull this off. Mobile telco investment is measured in the billions of dollars, right? These are expensive, expensive projects. So it might be that Facebook decides that they only need to do just enough, like just a little bit, in order to make this work, and then we'll see. Maybe if everything's different in five years, and actually it turns out that the main thing driving all of this is people have gotten so good at innovating with text and cheap ways to send data that this doesn't matter. It's like going back to, to the Russian way of doing it, where you, because you had crappy hardware in the USSR, you learned to be very efficient mm. with, your, with your coding skills. Yeah. I wonder, though, if, if it's something else. If, if it won't be pipe or, or fiber that's laid in the traditional way. I mean, that you're, mm -hmm. look, you're, you see, as we mentioned earlier, between Google and Facebook, these really innovative ways of bringing the internet to folks. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's there's rumor now that that Google and, and SpaceX are partnering to get uh, low orbit uh, satellites for internet. Yeah. I mean, may, maybe there will be a, a cheaper and more distributed way of, of bringing that next really. You know, it could be, and it may very well be that these low orbiting satellites or whatever are nowhere near as fast as cable and fiber, but they're good enough for the internet that has been built right in those parts of the world. And I guess this, this brings back a little bit to, especially when we talk about zero rating and when we talk about the differences between the internet that the developing world is getting and is going to get versus our internet and whether this is going to turn into really a two internet situation. The tale of two uh, internets. The tale of two internets, there you go. Um, I think that the, the, the easy view is to say, oh, like what we have is the real internet and what they have is an inferior version. Maybe... The other way to look at it is to say what they have over the longer arc of history more closely resembles the way that people get information, and what we have is actually like a privileged first-class form of the internet, right? And it may be that the future looks like an equilibrium between like the first-class internet versus the normal internet in the same way that the top 10% of people around the world have iPhones, and Apple owns like that segment of people, and then everybody else is on Android. And gets by more or less okay. Hmm. But I wonder where that equilibrium ends up, whether it's it's very um, skewed in the case of iOS versus Android, 10%, mm -hmm. 90%, or if it falls back more towards the middle. Because what we have to remember is that the reason that the, the battle for the, sorry, if you'll excuse the word analogy, for the, for the next mm -hmm. billion users from the web is, is so key is because the developing world will emerge. The Indian yeah. markets and, and the, um, the African markets will, will the ARPUs that you'll start seeing from those markets will, will maybe never quite get to, to what you get from North America, but they'll get closer sure. over time. So mm -hmm. You the, have to expect the need, that they will. The need for zero rating will go away. I think what, what's key is that it's almost like the, the first free drug from the, from the drug dealer, where if the first uh, addictive experience I see on the web is Facebook, it doesn't matter if three years later, five years later, I, I get the same internet experience, because I, I think where that equilibrium falls is as costs go down and incomes come up. But I'm already hooked on the platform. Well, I sure hope your version comes true. <laughs> well, and that's that's where I where I think this this whole tale of, of two internets and and um, zero ratings matters from a from a moral and societal perspective, because if that does become the case, where we all access or, or the next billion people all access the internet from one source, 
and everyone else on the web is sort of becomes beholden to that private access portal. Is the internet really still what it, what it stands for today, which is free speech and, and free access to information? Mm -hmm. It becomes free access to information asterisks if it comes from Facebook. Well, a good question is: Is there a, is there a third way of doing this? Is there a an ad supported model that that doesn't end up with a monopolistic supply? I think that it is. It's called Google wins. It is called Google. <laughs> the problem, though, is can Google win? And right. I don't think I don't think they can, and, and that's why, as as much as I'd like them to win, I, I'm I'm more bullish on on Facebook getting there first. And I think the difference is it comes down to competencies. Google is a is a company from the from the PC epic, and and Facebook is not. Facebook is uh, or has successfully become in the past few years the mobile platform. Mm-hmm. Um, Google. <sighs> A lot of people love to, you know, make fun of Google for, you know, how badly they understand user experience and how they are not really innovating in a mobile world. Um, anybody who has tried using Google Hangouts for conference calls has probably experienced this on a regular basis. Um, but I'm ready to give Google more credit than that. Uh, I think that. As much as people say they're not focused, you know, they're focusing all of, on all of this like self-driving cars and all of this, you know, lunacy while not focusing on their core business of selling ads. I think that they have been focused on building bigger and better moats than Android, such as you know, with them rolling out uh, Google Fiber and becoming an MBNO. Again, I suspect that we don't know the half of what they're actually doing in but the I, background. I think the difference at the end of the day, I mean, it may not be this year, it may not be the next five years, but the internet became social and, and kind of left Google behind. Yeah. Where I think that the value of something like graph search that Facebook has mm -hmm. is just intrinsically more valuable than inactive search. That that was what the, the first uh, epic of the internet was about, sure. which was, you know, I, I wanted to find something, I went to Google and I found it, and that's mm -hmm. where I made money. Now, it's the whole internet. Exactly, yeah. now because it's the push internet, I, I get pushed content from people I care about. And it's more about that experience of, of hey, I, I respect Alex's opinion. I see an article from him or a product that he's using, and and now it's that affinity for that product that that drives me to, to purchase it. And I think as the web evolved in that direction, Google was never quite able to get there. Sure. And that's why they lose. <laughs> no, you 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 make a very good uh, bear case, but I don't know. I it's it's really hard for me to call a company like Google in dire straits because you know that there is so much they're doing that we have no idea about. But on the other hand, you know, Matt raises a really good point here. Like The internet is a different beast than it was 10 years ago when Google was ascendant and when they were king, right? Where, where my mind's at now is, is what does competition look like for this next billion? It, specifically, you know, right now we're in this environment where things like Snapchat can bubble up almost overnight. Mm -hmm. Although and Facebook is certainly doing their best to uh, jujitsu that out of possibility. With, with Messenger as a platform. Totally. Uh, if you want to know more about that, read Benedict Evans. We won't rehash that here. But but you know when you when you look at this world with that that zero rating creates, where uh, Facebook is the platform, it's the one way of of, um, of accessing the internet. Does anyone else stand a chance? And maybe I'm looking at that from the wrong perspective because 
you know, companies, billion dollar companies were made from the Apple App Store. Mm -hmm. So why won't billion dollar companies grow from whatever monetized Facebook platform? Right. Well, I guess the the difference that people would say is that because they're Facebook's users, right? And you could say the same thing about the App Store, right? Oh, really, they're Apple users? Well, not really, because if I download Snapchat from the Apple App Store, um, Snapchat is only valuable because, you know, many millions of other people have also downloaded Snapchat and become users and they've created their own social graph. Whereas using Facebook Messenger, they're all Facebook's users. So Facebook can pretty much do as they will with you. Um, but, but I don't know. I mean, personally, I think that people will always find a way to create new interesting things. Uh, I don't think just because Facebook may become the AOL of the developing world doesn't mean that there will not be some sort of alternate way that people will use that will be completely open and HTML-like and web browserly, right? And maybe that's just the, the next level up the, the hierarchy. You know, sure. It was in, in, the, in the PC market's creation, it was the operating system that was key. Always and in the be- hierarchy of needs. <laughs> always, it always goes back there. Yeah. Uh, in, the, in the creation of the mobile space, it, it was, I guess, the, the operating system was important in the beginning, but you know, maybe it just has moved up a level and, and whatever's built on top of Facebook will be the next equivalent of apps. Um, I yeah. think this has been that a pretty a, fun chat. It was. It was a good first argument, and uh, we'll be back for more. Yeah. Matt, if you had to summarize your conclusions from this podcast in one sentence, what would it be? I think, I think the summary is you have to assume that, that some private actor will catalyze the next billion becoming online. And the question of, of whether that world exists on a, on a neutral platform, i.e. a browser, or a private platform, i.e. Facebook, via an app, fundamentally changes what the internet becomes next. And uh, I don't think we quite touched on what that will be, but, but it, it is two different futures that we're facing. So there's, there's the local two internets, which is the, the first world and the second world internet, but then there's also the, the two options that both of those can take. Mm-hmm. Um. To me, I guess my, my, my take would be I think a lot of the future of the Internet in the developing world and what the Internet will become for the next epoch has a lot to do with who pays, right? And this is not a new issue. Websites have always had banner ads on them, and newspapers have always had advertisers, you know, putting up content next to the funny pages, right? I think... If to frame this debate around all of a sudden there's advertising money going into the internet is, you know, a little bit short-sighted and also doesn't give you the sense to reflect properly on the longer arc of history where as more people come into the knowledged and read and privileged group of people who can access information, those group of people also enter the pool of, you know, individuals that can be advertised to. And although this may have negative effects, it also has positive ones, like allowing new businesses to come into being that rely on that advertising. So I think it's all going to come down to what people do with it, and I'm long on creativity always. That was a long sentence. Thanks, man. (laughs) All right. This has been the Emergence Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks.